chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all of the members of the body, though they are many, are one, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, that's a spiritual baptism, whether Jew or Greek or whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Drop down to verse 18 with me. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desires. And then finally, verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individual members of it. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for the word of God We can know you, we can understand what you've given us to do, we we know how to worship, we we know how to study, we know how to care for each other. You've given us so much details to this life, Lord, through the word of God. So Father, I would pray that our hearts and our minds would be attentive to it today. Lord, I especially ask for strength, Lord. I pray that your spirit would speak, Lord. His words would be strong and soul-piercing. Grab our spiritual attention and wake us up, Lord, if it needs to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many know that Hiro Unada died January 16th, 2014. I'm sure you're all wondering who Hiro Unada is. Hiro Unada was a very special man. Um, and his story has been accounted many ways. Hiro Inada was uh, emperor, um, he was involved in the emperor Japanese army in World War II. He was a man that was left on an island in 1944 and told to guard it with his life. He lived there for 29 years. Now if you know your math and you know any history, you know the war ended in '45. He guarded the island for 29 years. This man died just recently. He died on January 16th, 2014 at the age of 91. Unada was caught in a time warp. He was a second lieutenant and he was one of the war's last holdouts. When you read his story, it's phenomenal. He was a soldier that believed that the emperor was a deity, he was a god. And a war was a sacred mission. And he refused to leave his post. In 1944, he arrived on a little island called Lubang. It's a strategic island, about 16 miles long, about six miles wide. And it's on the southwest approach to Manila Bay. And if you've ever flown into Manila, you can actually see these islands that are dotted. And he was given charge over that island. When the American forces landed on February 28th, 1945, the last of the Japanese fled or were killed. But a major Yoshimai Tanguki, I think I got his name right, gave this Lieutenant Unada his final orders to stand and fight. And he said this, quote, it may be three years, it may be five years, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. That was the promise from the major. 29 years later, no one had come for him. It was a simple command. Stay, hold your post, do what you're supposed to do. And he held it for 29 years. 
He held that order all the way to 1974. He was loyal. He was loyal to the military code he was taught. He served a god, at least what he thought was a god, the emperor of Japan. And he preferred death rather than surrender. And so he remained on the island of Lubang for 29 years. After Japan surrendered, the, that September, thousands of Japanese soldiers were scattered across Asia. Many were captured, some were killed, many committed suicide. Hundreds of, hundreds of them were left in hiding. Most died of starvation and sickness. Few survivors refused to believe that droplet leaflets given by both Japan and United States were, were propaganda. Lieutenant Unanda, and he was an intelligent officer, uh, trained in guerrilla warfare. He had three enlisted men with him, and they all found these leaflets proclaiming the war to be in, but they believed them to be enemy propaganda. They needed to hold their post. They built bamboo huts, pilfered rice, and other food from village, killed cows for meat, and they were tormented by night and day by tropical heat, rats, mosquitoes. They patched their uniforms and kept their rifles in working order. Considering themselves to be at war, they invaded every American and Filipino search party and attacked islanders that they took as guerrilla warfare. About 30 inhabitants were killed in these skirmishes by these Japanese soldiers. One of the enlisted men surrendered to the Filipino forces in 1950. That's five years after the war. Two others were shot to death in skirmishes, one in 1954 and one in 72 by island police searching for these renegades. The last holdout, Lieutenant Unada, officially declared dead in Japan at 1959. But he was not dead. He was holding to his command. In 1974, Mr. Suzuki, Noro Misuki, heard of him and went to this island. He pleaded with him and insisted that the war was over, showing him photographs of modern-day Japan. Unada refused to believe. Suzuki returned to Japan, got more photographs, and a group of delegates that came, including the brother of this Lieutenant Unada, who convinced him that the war was over. There are tremendous pictures of this man coming out. He had a delegation of men along with this young reporter who walked him out. His uniform is remarkably put together still. Though patched, still held his samurai sword and his, and his uniform in order. He believed he had a command from God. And he would not leave his post. Now, it wasn't God. And it falls short of anything we see in the scriptures. But when I read that article here just a couple of weeks ago, it moved me. I thought, here's a man dying for a dead cause. He knows he's called to something. He knows he's been given orders. He will fulfill them. And not hell or high water could convince him of what he was supposed to be a part of. He saw himself as an, a part of an imperial group of people. And he fought to the end. You see the accounts, there's more letters written and more things written. If you study his life a little bit, he went back to Japan, was given a hero's welcome, 
And when Japan was struggling with rebuilding and all the years that have gone by and materialism had hit, it is said this one man brought so much encouragement to the nation of Japan because he stood and followed orders. When I read of that, I thought, Lord, you have given us such a greater command than, than following an earthly man. You have given us a command to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think of what God has done for each of us, he has given us orders. I call you, first of all, out of the world. I take your sin, I place it on my son, I judge him for it. I bring you into a group of people called my bride. I will be your groom. I will give you a life with me now. You will be among many others who make up a one body called the church. And I want you to serve me in this. I want you to worship my son and keep him as head of all things. See, this is the dedication that the scriptures give to the church. And I think what's lost so often, just as Japan had really lost their drive and this one man brought back an encouragement to a nation, so the church loses its drive sometimes. It's all kinds of things that rob us from the commands of being Christ's church, being part of something so unique, so special, there's nothing in the world that can match to it. Often it is materialism and the desire to have our needs met. Today, we read article after article of churches trying to figure out how to meet the needs of their people. It's almost overwhelming. You can read them constantly from a pastoral position. I see them constantly. And yes, we want to meet the needs. That's, don't, don't miss that here. But the church has digressed into a needs-based movement in a lot of ways. But that's not what the Bible intended. That's not what God intended for his son to be the head of. It's an organization, it's an organism, a, a living organism that, that is alive and functions and moves. It breathes. It has energy to it. It is something that you and I, each and every one of us, have uniquely and sovereignly been a part of this and made to be part of this. So when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see Paul trying to give imagery to us. He wants you and I to see what it looks like to be part of a body. And he does it very well, and we'll work our way down through this passage briefly this morning, but you'll see arms and legs and, and hearts and protected things that are in behind the cages of ribs that, that, are, that need to be protected, and you'll see private areas, and you'll see all of this. God leaves nothing unturned as he exposes, look, we have a body, and it's greatly dependent upon one another to be one. Look with me at verse 12. My first thought is this, when I look at these verses, is the Spirit's work that unifies believers into one body of Christ. The Spirit is at work here. Notice verse 12 and 13. For even as the body is one, yet as many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Here's the key verse. For by one Spirit we were all baptized, immersed, positioned into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, that's very diverse there. Whether slave or free, that's completely diverse because they didn't fellowship together. And we'll see in a passage in a minute, he even takes on male and female. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. 
So the Spirit works to unite believers into one body, the body of Christ. So the Spirit changes our position. When you're saved, he changes your position. He takes you from deadness to alive, right? We talked about this last week, from blind to seen. He changes your positions, and he re-identifies us into the body of Christ. So I have a really unique view up here. And I'm, sometimes my sons growing up in a, with a dad, a preacher, they always wanted to kind of sneak up and see what it looks like from my view. And this is an awesome view. Because I can see people when they doze off. No, and I didn't say that. Um, (laughs) What I get to see is the diverseness of what God is doing. We we are a diverse group in here. And many of you, I know your testimonies. I know what God has done in your life and how he brought you to Jesus Christ. I, I have some ideas of your gifts and your talents. And when I stand up here on Sunday mornings, and I know the other pastor elders feel the same way, we see what God is doing. He's gathering groups of people, and he's declaring them righteous through salvation, and he puts them into one body with, with great diversity to bring glory to his son. And so when I stand up here and I look at you, I don't, I don't see failures and all of that. I, I see what God's doing. And, and I see this, I, I see the Spirit baptizing people into one body. That means he identifies us. At salvation, he said, I'm going to show you Christ. That's what the Spirit does. When you got saved, the Spirit of God floodlighted Jesus Christ to you. And it could be as simple as you, as a young child at Vacation Bible School that saw the cross and realized that Jesus died for you. That was a Spirit floodlighting Jesus to you. You could be here and be a little older and got lost in the world with all its filth and rottenness that decays the soul. But the Spirit did the same thing for you. He shined Jesus. And he identified you with Christ and he opened your mind and your heart and the Spirit not only saves you, but notice in the verse, he baptizes you, he immerses you into one body. That's how God looks at us. You say, well, am I important to God? Absolutely. And he'll outline this because the foot can't say, hey, I'm not the hand, so I'm not part of the body. No, he sees each and every one as a unique part of the body of Christ. So when we think about the spirit and his role, he illuminates our hearts and minds to the finished work of Christ and he grants us God-given faith. He opens our heart to believe and then he establishes you as part of his body. Think of a wedding. I love weddings um, to do them. I'm okay with attending some of them. I like, I like doing them because it's such a great view. I got the groom on my left and his bride's coming through the doors or coming down the dock. And and this groom is, is there, and he's provided for her, and he has a place for her, and he's, he's cared for her, and he's loved her, and he's, a, he's, he's attracted her to himself. And she comes. And it's a beautiful teaching of what happens to us. The Lord comes, and he, through his spirit, shines Jesus into our lives, and he wipes away our sin, takes away our dirt and filth, and dresses us in the white, white, righteous robes of Jesus Christ. And then he brings us to himself. He draws, he woos, he brings us 
to himself and they unite forever. What God has put together, let no man put asunder. That's just not a wedding verse. That's a church. That's a church and all that God has done for us. He brings us together. This is the work of the Spirit. Notice, whether Jew or Greek, can you imagine this statement in this time when this was written? Jews had little to do with, with Greeks. They were God's people. You, you are just, you're pagans. In fact, the word for Gentile, ethnos, we get the word pagan from them. That's how they viewed them. And the only way you can get to our God is our way. You must do these things. And Paul says, no, that's not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is diverse. I'll bring who I want. I'll open whose eyes who I want to. I will have mercy on those who have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And Paul says the spirit of God brings Jew and Greek, brings the greatest diversity of people. I will bring Jew and I will bring Palestinian to come to know Christ. And if you study what's going on in Palestine, there's a great church within Palestine right now that's growing. And yet, there's a wall between these people and there's Jews being saved and Jews for Jesus and other ministries are, are leading people to Christ. And the Spirit is baptizing them into one group. How about slave and free? Wow, we don't quite get this anymore. But we saw this in our own country, didn't we? We saw the damage of racism. We still see it today. Certain people get certain privileges. Not in God's body. Not in the body of Christ. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're Greek or Jew or slave or free, you drink the spirit. And that gives you equality. You take in, you absorb the spirit of God and he puts you into the body of Christ. Let me illustrate this in Galatians chapter three quickly. The context of Galatians chapter 3 is the fact that the law can't save you. It is the work of the Spirit of God that does it. So he starts out chapter 3 verse 1, who's bewitched you, he uses this very term, who's, who's put a spell on you that you think that you can come to Jesus Christ through works, through the law. Oh, foolish Galatians. You will go to hell trying to come to me through your good works. That's the context of Galatians chapter three. And he's proving that you come to Jesus through faith alone, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me at the end of the chapter, verse 24. Therefore the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ. Well, what was the purpose for the law? To help you know you need a savior. That's what the purpose was. So that we may be justified by faith. Notice he never attaches the word justification with law. It's, it's attached with faith. Verse 25. By now, uh, but now the faith has come and we no longer are under the tutor. So, so the law was there to show us we needed a savior. Show us there was a holy God. But now we've come to faith and now we're under Jesus. We're in him. Verse 26. For you are all, all. Good word to circle there. Sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 27. For all who have been baptized. There's our word again. Now so many get caught up in the word baptize. baptize. It, it literally, and you've heard me preach this many times, and you will hear this till I die. It means to identify you into the Lord Jesus Christ. In most cases, within the doctrinal books of the scriptures. 
Now, certainly water baptism is that beautiful command given to us to, to, to declare God's glory individually as we step into the waters of baptism, but it is only a picture of this. It is a picture of God taking people, immersing them, positioning them into Christ, and clothing you with Christ. Verse 28, look at this verse. So there's neither Jew nor Greek. Here he goes again. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. This is the work of the Spirit. You are here today. You are a part of a church because God saw fit to identify you through the Spirit and make you part of something. See, I think the church has lost its biblical reputation. The biblical reputation is we belong to him. We are here to bring him glory, to exalt him. Instead, church has become a popularity contest. It's become a a right to own or or what you deserve in, in so many cases. And it's easy to drift into that. It's very easy to drift into that. And that's why our focus has to be on the Lord Jesus Christ, the work of the Spirit, the sovereign work of God to place us uniquely in the body of Christ. Look at our second thought as you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God providentially designs the body of Christ. God providentially designs the body of Christ. Notice that verse 14 says, for the body is not one member but many. Wouldn't it be horrible if it was just one guy, the lead guy who is really the body of Christ and everybody else is just kind of his peeps? What a horrible display of who Christ is and who God is. Notice the foot says in 15, because I am not the hand, I'm not part of the body. Is, is it not for this reason and any the less a part of the body? Can he just say that? And if the ear says, because I'm not the eye, I'm not part of the body. Is it not for this reason any the less part of the body? Can he just say, hey, I'm an ear, so I'm just an ear, I'm not a part. Well, maybe you are an ear, but it doesn't mean you're not part. That's what he's trying to get across. Maybe you are an ear. Maybe you're a pinky toe. Maybe you somehow landed up as a belly button. I don't know. (laughs) But it doesn't mean you're not part of something. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? How foolish to think that there are lesser roles within the body of Christ. He's trying to expose in us the foolishness of saying there's lesser roles. Great, we can't hear now. Great, I can't see. I can't walk because I don't have feet or a big toe. See, he's he's trying to get us alerted to something greater. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the sense of smell? Look at verse 18. But now God has placed members, each one of you and me, in the body just as he desires. I love that little last phrase. And that's what this point off. God providentially designs the body of Christ as he desires. This is our sovereign God. This is him gifting us and giving us what we need, what the body of Christ needs. You have to address this in your own personal life. You cannot let this verse go by. You have to look at this verse and you say, okay, God, you have desired me to play some role in your body. What is it? And how do I find it? Well, first of all, let's establish this to be true by other verses. Look with me at Acts chapter 17. 
I want to drive this thought home into you that we have a sovereign God that is in control of all things. Nothing slips through him. You know Acts 17, particularly the last part of it, Paul is in Athens. He's on a particular place called Mars Hill. This is the Greek gods. This is a temple, most likely. He is right in the throne of paganism. He is a, he is a bold man. As he walks through their temples, he finds a god that is called the unknown god, and he uses that as his launching pad to share the gospel particularly through a sovereign aspect of God leading to the glory of Christ. Join with me and follow me in verse 25. Actually, back up to verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, since he is Yahweh of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Your gods do, my God doesn't, he says. He cannot be bound. He is boundless is one of his great attributes. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. There's another attribute of God. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He would not be God if he was dependent on something else. So he says, look, your gods are dependent on it. You've got to come here and little shine their little domes and wax them and, you know, make sure if they fall over, they're put back up. This is not our God. Our God doesn't need anything, middle 25, since he himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things. What a statement. I ordain your days. Psalms 139 says, I know when they begin and I know where they end, and you don't get one of them unless I declare it. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Well, there goes the alien theory coming to earth and a lot of other false theories. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their inhabitants. Now, I was a young man when I first started studying this passage. I believe that God had made a mistake. I was born about 100 years too early. I would have loved just to been horse and buggy. Then we all lived within a 20-mile sphere and we had one church there. And that was the way I wanted to live. And then I read this passage. And I said, Lord, you've appointed my times and my boundaries and my inhabitants. That's pretty detailed, isn't it? Scott, you will be born here. You will live here. You will marry this person. He has all of that in control. And you will live to this age. And I will collect you and bring you home. He has all of this. Their gods were dead. They were just stone carvings. He's showing, look, this God has all of these things in control. And think about this just for a moment. Think about this in the role of the church. He has determined our pointed times and boundaries. He's determined where he wants you to worship and what he wants you to be a part of and how he wants you to serve. I think that very easily fits into that text. We are the body of Christ. And if we're like the world's organization, 10% of the people do all the work. Is that how I say it? 10% of the people do all the work. Why 90% wait and watch? Get involved with Little League. The playhouse. I mean, whatever else. I mean, we know that. Is that, is that the church? So if, he, if this is true, if Paul is dealing with us with truth, he has determined and pointed our times and the boundaries and our inhabitants and what we should be involved in and how we should pursue him. You can read the rest of that passage. It's phenomenal. Let me take you to one more. Ephesians chapter 3.
Ephesians chapter three is a powerful text. I will strive my best to make short comments as I go through this because it is about you and me, the church. Ephesians chapter three, we'll pick it up in verse eight. To me, the very least of the saints, Paul says, he, he did not forget how sinful he was before God saved him. doesn't mean that he lives with regrets or he's full of guilt. He just sees himself as one who is in great need of grace. In fact, he says that this grace was given. And notice the grace was given to do what? To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles, one untimely born, meaning I wasn't born with the rest of the disciples as they walked with Christ. I came along later. But God gave me grace to preach to the Gentiles. Now, this is a very important little verse because Paul had a passion for his Jewish people. That's what Romans 9 through 11 is, a very deep, strong, sovereign passage. Twice he says, I would give my soul up for my own people if I could. But he knew God was sovereign. He knew he would have mercy on who he had mercy and compassion. And he was just and perfect in all that he did. And how can the clay say to the potter, hey, make me what you want me to be? Great statements through that. So when he says this, that he gave me grace to go to the Gentiles, this was not something easy for Paul. He had to get over his stigma. He had to get over the fact that God had just come to the, Gentile, to the Jews and be willing to go to you and I. And notice, it isn't just going to the pagans, because the word Gentile is pagans, but to do what? To preach to them the unfathomable riches of Christ. The bottomless truth of Jesus Christ. I can't get to the bottom of him. That's my job. Notice verse 9. And to bring to light... What is the administration, economy, plan of the mystery which from the ages has been hidden in God who created things? Paul realized as God, as Christ himself taught him, look, I have always had a plan to reach the Gentiles. It has been my plan from the foundations of the world to reach them and I'm now unveiling it to you. Go teach them, gather them, put them together. Verse 10, look at this. So the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. The revealed, manifold here, the revealed, the explained wisdom of God might be made known to only the Jews. That is not what that verse is saying. Made to Christ's body. You and I come in here on Sunday mornings and, and we meet in our small groups and we go to Sunday schools and we study our Bible if we don't get this, we're missing a huge part of what we're a part of. The Bible is saying that God is revealing the wisdom of himself to a particular group of people called the body of Christ. So this is why we get excited when we talk about the church. It's not because we want more money and more people and bigger buildings and all of that. We want to realize what we're a part of. We are not part of some club some group of people that get some fringe benefits from being here. We're part of a plan that God laid down so that he could reveal his wisdom that has been hidden from the ages to his body. He wants you to know God. And Paul's saying, look, this is my job. In fact, look how powerful what God's doing in the church. Look at the rest of the verse. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Well, who's that? Satan. I want you to know I got a group of people down there. 
I've redeemed them through my son's blood. They are preserved and protected for all of eternity. You can't have them. I won. You lost. That is what he's doing. And the demonic world looks at the church and goes, wow, he keeps saving people and putting them into this this group. He keeps pulling them out of ethnic diversity and economic diversity. He keeps putting them into the church and making them a special group. And we keep losing them to the church. And Dallasly, it drives them nuts. God also protects us. Notice this, this is not just something he made up along the way, verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christ, that, tells me, that tells me this. Christ came to earth knowing the eternal purpose of God was to create the body of Christ. So when he hung on the cross, he thought of you. You were part of the body of Christ. I am doing this as the eternal purpose of God. I am going to gather this unique group that's going to be called my bride, my church, my body. And God laid this down from the beginning. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and confidence and access through faith in him. Walk into the throne room of God. Just walk into it. You can do that as a Christian. You can walk right into the throne room of God and say, God, I need your help. Because Jesus has given you access. He didn't give it to the world. He didn't give it to the Elks Lodge, the Moose Lodge. He didn't give that to anybody else. He gave it to his true, pure, washed white church. You can walk into the presence of God. And you may be on your commute tomorrow morning. And you're driving along talking to God. And you are in his throne room. Is that not a fringe benefit? And yet we're so worried about what else I can get from the church and will they do my style of music and will they do this for my kids and will they, why can I get this and, and, and can I get this tax right off? And, and No, no. You've been given access to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart by my tribulations on your behalf for they are your glory. He's saying, look, I'm suffering for Jesus and Jesus is your glory. Don't lose heart. I mean, it was hard. He's writing from prison. They're Apostle Paul. They loved him. He was their pastor. Just don't lose heart. This is all for the glory of the Lord. This is what he called me to do. This was the foot I had to wear. This was the part of the body that God asked me to do. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow the knee before the Father. Now here's the body idea again. From whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, And he grants you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. He holds us all together, uniquely brings us together. We derive from his name. He gives us his riches and glories and he strengthens us. And there's so much good stuff and I beg you to read the rest of that. But you are grounded and rooted in love. The church is the most beautiful place on earth. It has to be. It has to be. Because it's a bunch of lost people that he cleansed and he put them together and he makes us a functioning group of people together. Look at our last thought before communion. God intended the body of Christ to be interdependent, not independent. Back with me to 1 Corinthians 12. God 
intended the body of Christ to be interdependent, not independent. Verse 19, if they were all one body, where would the body be? But now they are many members of one body. If the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much true that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. I thought through this a little bit. You know, spleens are probably kind of tender. Ever have a gallbladder problem? Ever have a heart problem? You know, God thought about that, and he put a cage around it to protect those things. They're tender. They're, they're softer. They, they can't take impact. So he put a cage around us called our rib cage and our shoulders and our, and our skeleton so that it was protected. But, boy, hey, anybody want to not have the heart? Do you need that spleen, really? Want to give up your liver? See, that's what happens when the body of Christ fails to function. Some of our most inner parts, most important ones, stop functioning. We deem them not necessary because we can't see them. They're not a head and their mouth and, a, and hands and legs. And so we don't see them necessary. But God says, no, they are extremely necessary. You know, Scott, who are these? It's easy to say, well, they're nursery workers. Well, they probably are. But let's not start labeling stuff. Let's start saying, wow, God, where am I in this process? Where, where is that process that, that I am? I, I've sit, considered myself kind of weak and, and maybe not needed. But yet you have a role for me. Verse 23, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more honor. I mean, pinky toes, come on, do you really need them? No, honor them. You fall over without them. You can't run and walk and make good cuts when somebody's trying to tackle you. You need them. And what about the less presentable members? The world spends fortunes covering up these things, right? We wear clothes because there's things that, are, that are, we don't present out in public. But he says, look, these things are to be honored. They're, they're, even when we cover things up, there's still purposes for all things that God has put together. Verse 25, so that there may be no division in the body. No division in the body. He says, God, how do I do this? Well, you say, Lord, I'm going to f- see a need and I'm going to meet it. Maybe it's somebody who's going through difficulty and I'm going to bring them a meal. Maybe it's sitting with somebody who's new who feels like they're not part of a group already. I mean, there's such wonderful ways to serve. Today we're going to watch a football game. Well, I'm going to. I trust many of you are. Um, and you think about that just for a moment. You know I'd work this in here somehow. <laughs> if Peyton Manning doesn't run on the field in quarterback today, I'm not watching. I'm just turning it off. I'm going to go watch Star Wars or something. If Peyton Manning isn't there, it's not going to be much of a game. But there's another guy who's kind of important there too. Somebody has to snap him the ball. And if he ain't there, it ain't going to be very good because now they're going to get some guy off the sideline that may not know how to snap, but that's extremely important. But if he doesn't have anybody to throw to, they're really in trouble because their running game isn't that great. And there's a guy on the other side that runs his mouth and and they've got to beat that guy. 
there's defenders that got to stop Manning, right? Otherwise, it won't be a very good game. If they just said, well, he's too good, we're not even going to try. We need defenders and the coaches. Think about that. These knucklehead, high-paid, fluting guys got to have the, the not very, very not paid much guys telling them what to do. Just go out there and tackle anything that has an X on it or however they say that. But it goes beyond that. If you've ever played athletics at any level, you need a trainer, man, because you're going to suffer injuries. And I'm telling you, there's guys hurting that are going to play today. They've been taped up. They've had everything they can have done to them this week trying to get on that field because they may never be back there again. And there's a trainer that makes $25,000 back behind there doing it all. There's equipment managers. Otherwise, they're dirty. their jerseys are dirty and they smell like a stinky men's locker room. There's ticket sales. And how about if security quit today? They said there's black helicopters flying around going to escort, quote, shoot them down, if they enter that area. That's what our world has come to. How about concession stands? What would a game be without hearing this? Hey, peanuts! I mean, you know, you got to go to a ball game, you're what? You're going to have a dog and, and peanuts and, right. I mean, there is so much to what is just going to happen today. And, and, and I know it's silly in some way. But think about it. If our church is made up of a preacher and a couple of elders and a sound booth guy, we're in trouble. Why would God use us? Why would he take us and say, I'm going to present you and use you for my glory. I'm going to attract people out of the world and bring them to you so you can teach them the gospel and care for them and love them and allow them to exercise their gifts. Why would he do that? So the body of Christ is not something that we, we just slough off. The diversity of the church is God-ordained. It's a means to bring fellowship to oneness, to, to put feet to what we believe but unless each diverse member recognizes and accepts his or her part of the world, the, the, role, the role that God gives them, diversity will rather become um, something that divides us. It'll destroy. It won't build up. It'll bring discord, not harmony. It results in self-serving and not self-getting. One last thought on this. While Christ was on the earth, he was incarnate in a single body. We know that, Right? We believe he came, he added to his deity the nature of man. So he dwelled in a single body. That was Jesus, that was the Son of God, that was the second member of the Trinity, that was God incarnate in Christ dwelled that single body. When you think about the body of Christ, we now understand through the scriptures that, that Christ is incarnate in another body now. A great and a diverse and a precious body that is called his church. Christ is now incarnate once again in the world through you and I. He didn't call us the body of Grace Bible Church. He didn't call us the body of something else. He called us the body of Christ. It's a term. It has a definition behind it. And so it's when the world looks at us, they should see, as songs have written and people have preached on, they should see the hands and feet of God, the hands and feet of Christ. Those willing to serve, those willing to care, those willing to teach, those willing to give, those willing to be hospitable. And the gifts go on and on that we have. 
One last verse and then we'll go to communion. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians 5. Verse 14. Memorize this verse. This is our, this is the, the motivation behind what we're talking about. Paul says this, for the love of Christ controls us. Your Bible might say, use the word compel. The word in the Greek is, means a drive. We get the English, an idea of the English word, to drive. The love of Christ drives us, motivates us, controls us, compels us. Because this, we've concluded this. This is what the church has concluded. This is what this church believes in. That one died for all, therefore we all died. Verse 16. If we believe, verse 15, here's the reaction to verse 16 of the church. Therefore, from now on, starting today, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Ooh, that's a very important term. Oh, hey, that's our pastor. He gets into heaven first. Oh, hey, they're so-and-so. They, boy, they do all that stuff. Paul says, no, no, that's not how we're going to recognize people. Then he says this, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, we, yet now we know him this way no longer. So he once was on this earth, we, we see him as flesh, but now he is going to be recognizable in some other way. But look back at verse 15. So we believe in 14 that one died for all and all died. Verse 15, and he died for all so that they might they, they who live, that's you and I, no longer live for themselves, but for him, Christ, the body of Christ, who died and rose again. I got ahead of myself. Verse 16 shows us that, yes, he was in flesh at one time, but now we know him in the body of Christ. So, do you believe that he died for you? Do you believe that you died with him? Do you believe that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you died on the cross with him? You, Lord, I'm dead to my sin. Do you believe that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he raised you from the dead and gave you a new life? He says, stop living for yourself. Live for Jesus. Father, the church is such a complex thing in our minds, but yet it's, it is very simple when it comes to the scriptures. It's a group of people that, that were desperate. They had come to an understanding that their sins had a wage that was due with them, and it was death. They came to the end of themselves, and they said, Lord, we can't do this. We can't save ourselves. Our works aren't good enough. Our heritage can't save us. There's nothing in and of itself inherent to us, Lord, that we could save ourselves. And Lord, as a group, as individuals who make up the group, we, we offered ourselves to you that you would save us. And Lord, it's, it's so simple. You took a bunch of lost people and you made them a group. And they're called the body of Christ. And they function like a body. They have parts that need to be protected that are a little more sensitive. They have parts that are a little more out there and recognizable. They have parts that struggle with feeling useless. 
But Father, when we put our focus back on you, Lord Jesus, and live for you and die to self, what amazing organism you've made us. We are the body of Christ. And so we praise you for that, Lord. May you continue to help us have a right view of the church. Even with all our flaws and our failures and our sinfulness at times, Lord, may we get back up, ask forgiveness, and run. A body that working, breathing and pumping blood and arms and legs moving for your glory. We beg you to help us. Lord, be merciful on us. We're, we're weak at times, Lord. But we do love you. And we are grateful. We're a people that exercise thanksgiving, Lord, through song and preaching and fellowship. So we, Lord, we'd ask that you would bless the church for your sake. Give us strength, Lord, to run till you come and get us. We'll give you the praise for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.